Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. This Star News Media Podcast is presented by North Chase Family Dentistry. Open evenings, Saturdays, and they probably take your insurance. Visit them on the web at NorthChaseFamilyDentistry.com. And by Tidewater Heating and Air Conditioning, servicing all major brands with highly trained technicians who are the best the industry has to offer, serving Wilmington and surrounding communities for more than 40 years. Learn more at TidewaterAC.com. And by Cape Fear Pharmacy, a local independent pharmacy providing health care and compounding services customized to meet our patients' needs. Visit CapeFearPharmacy.com today and let us take care of you. It was a legacy that began with cannon fire and ended with a bombshell. When the Atlantic Coastline Railroad announced on December 15, 1955, that it was ending its century-long relationship with Wilmington and moving its general offices to a new city, it was as if the community had been punched in the gut. Shock doesn't begin to encapsulate the emotion that swept across Wilmington that day, which became known as Black Thursday. The railroad was not only one of the city's largest and most influential employers, with more than 1,600 workers, but it was also an industry that helped put the city on the map, dating all the way back to before the Civil War. In the age of the railroad's dominance in Wilmington, the north end of the downtown riverfront had never been more prosperous and lively. In its heyday, the railroad's operations were spread out over a sprawling campus of office buildings, freight houses, railways, and warehouses, most of them now long gone. Looking back on black and white photos of this sizable operation, you're left to wonder how such a huge industry could be wiped away, even with the passage of time. But it was, although the history persists. The story of the Atlantic Coastline Railroad is the story of connection, progress, and business. But it is also the story of Wilmington, which can be traced through the iron rails that once connected it to the outside world like never before. This is Cape Fear Unearthed, the podcast exploring the persisting legends, historical oddities, and landmark stories of southeastern North Carolina. As always, I'm your host, Hunter Ingram, and I'm a reporter with the Star News here in Wilmington. For this week's final episode of 2020, we're returning to a day in Wilmington's history that even this terrible, horrible, 
no good, very bad year would deem depressing. This year marks the 65th anniversary of the Atlantic Coastline Railroad's announcement that it was parting ways with Wilmington on December 15, 1955. At the time the announcement was made, the railroad was the backbone of Wilmington in many ways. It was its largest employer, its biggest means of exporting goods, and its most reliable connection to cities up and down the East Coast. When the history-altering verdict was made to find a new home for the railroad's headquarters, no one in Wilmington saw it coming, including the people who worked for the railroad. This week, we will delve into the story of the railroad in Wilmington, leading up to and after Black Thursday, exploring how it became the Cape Fear's lifeline, how it bolstered the city's profile during the Civil War, and how it reclaimed its status after the war as a juggernaut of the South. As always, I'll share with you this story as it has been passed down through history and told through legend, and then I'll bring in someone from the community with knowledge of our tale to continue the discussion and explore whether or not history can be trusted. And this week's guest is Holly Saperstein the executive director of the Wilmington Railroad Museum. So sit back and settle in for this episode of Cape Fear Unearthed, as we ride the rail through history to tell the story of Black Thursday and the exodus of the Atlantic Coastline Railroad. On April 15, 1840, cannon fire was sounded every 15 minutes in Wilmington to celebrate the completion of construction on the entire Wilmington and Weldon Railroad line. More than 500 people gathered in town to share in a barbecue feast, and the new rail service was christened with a 161-gun salute, a nod to the 161 miles of track now embedded in the ground a length that made it the longest railroad in the world for a time. The last stake was driven into the ground on March 19, 1840, at which time the company had 12 locomotives, 8 passenger coaches, 4 post office cars, and 50 freight cars. On that day, two of its locomotives, the New Hanover and the Brunswick, made the entire 161-and-a-half-mile run, a journey that previously would have taken days. Rail service had already begun as early as 1838 on the tracks that had been completed. At the beginning, the speed wasn't great, and they were still building out the railroad's reach, but it was a start. The Wilmington and Weldon Railroad Company had been chartered in 1834 as the Wilmington-Raleigh Railroad, when its organizers aspired to connect Wilmington then the state's largest city, to its capital. Unfortunately, in the intervening years, Raleigh officials couldn't come together to pull their weight in the project, and it was diverted to Weldon in Halifax County, eventually by way of Goldsboro and Rocky Mount. For more than a century at that point, Wilmington had been the most important seaport for North Carolina, and its most critical connection to global trading. But it all required patience, 
as traders prepared for long journeys by sea and tediously slow horse and buggy caravans by land. With the arrival of the railroad, however, the time it took to transport goods and services in and out of Wilmington was cut down significantly. This would become essential during the Civil War when the Confederacy grew increasingly reliant on Wilmington and its railroad, which was an essential link in the railroad network on the East Coast. When its strongholds began to fall all over the South as the war stretched on, the Confederacy looked to Wilmington and the Wilmington-Weldon line more and more to replenish its forces with supplies, and it would fight to keep control over it until the Union captured the city in February 1865. Without the railroad, the Confederacy didn't stand a chance, and Robert E. Lee knew it, calling Wilmington the lifeline of the Confederacy. But after the war, the railroad found itself in a tough spot. Its tracks and bridges had been damaged by the fighting, and although it made significant profit thanks to heavy wartime traffic, the company made that money in Confederate currency something that became virtually useless the second the South lost. The Wilmington and Weldon Railroad Company was battle-worn, but there was a turning point ahead. After the war, Robert Bridgers took over as president and began healing the company's wounds by luring in financial backing. He would also start looking to the future, working to advance the average speed of their cars pushing for more connections and freights with cities farther north and deeper into the south, and aggressively pursuing mergers with other lines. That last one, which involved merging existing or in-development rails, would be a key strategy to maintaining dominance in the industry. Your place in the hierarchy of the railroad business was all dependent on how far and fast you could go and how many cities you could reach on the way. Even before the war, the rail business in Wilmington was a game of ever-changing challengers that would try to build on what the Wilmington and Weldon line had begun. In the 1850s, the Wilmington and Manchester line had also come online, running about 170 miles from the port in Wilmington to the heart of South Carolina as a means of exporting cotton. There was also a Wilmington, Charlotte, and Rutherford line that ran about 300 miles in a near straight line across the state. As more railroad companies started to materialize, some were absorbed by others to survive. For a time in the 1870s, the Wilmington and Weldon line joined forces with the Wilmington, Columbia, and Augusta line. And listen, I know, this is a lot of railroad names to be bombarded with. But all you need to know is that by the end of the century, the Wilmington and Weldon line would serve as the backbone for a behemoth new player in the business, the Atlantic Coastline Railroad. With the two main lines in Wilmington and several across Virginia, South Carolina, Georgia, and eventually Florida, the ACL had a significant presence right at the heart of the eastern seaboard. The new company would formally come together in 1900, at which time it started solidifying plans 
to keep the headquarters in Wilmington. Despite so many options now under its umbrella, Wilmington still led the pack in potential. Because of its proximity to the port, its support from financial backers, and its centralized location on the East Coast. As the heart of a railroad conglomerate, Wilmington's daily pulse began to quicken as more trains drove more economic opportunities and political interests in and out of town. More importantly, its presence also put hundreds and eventually thousands of the city's residents to work over the decades. We'll talk more about the roles residents played in this operation on a daily basis later on with our guest. It's hard to fully explain the amount of action that the railroad brought to the north end of Wilmington. There would have been near-constant movement of hundreds of people in and out of the ten administrative buildings and the network of warehouses, carpenter shops, freight houses, and workshops. Not to mention the trains that were coming into town, which went to the mechanics for repairs or to gather their cargo and passengers before heading off to their next destination. The smell of soot and steam would have also been inescapable and likely something that the residents of downtown got used to over time. It was a dirty and sometimes dangerous industry and one that changed the pace of this end of the city. The so-called epicenter of the railroad in Wilmington was at Red Cross and Front Streets, where it held its offices and many of its shops. That was where the company's crown jewel, Union Station, once stood. Built in 1913 and named like other Union Stations across the country for its service as the union between multiple railroad lines, the first floor of the building was where passengers would buy tickets to hop on the rail out of town. It was also where people passing through could store their luggage or take a shower if their stopover wasn't long enough for a proper visit. Accounts of Union Station's aesthetic seem to imply that no expense was spared as it boasted red marble floors and mahogany walls. The upper floors were more administrative offices in addition to the signature general office building across the street. Today, this area is the campus of Cape Fear Community College. Eventually, the ACL would stretch to Jacksonville, Florida, where a boom in real estate would drive an increase in traffic in the first half of the century. By 1927, it managed more than 14,000 miles of rail. And while it struggled like everyone did during the Great Depression, it made it out the other side with its bottom line intact. World War II would prove to be another test of endurance for the railroad in Wilmington. As military activity ramped up in the southeast, so too did traffic on the railroad, as it moved not only people, but also supplies for the war effort. Don't forget that Camp Davis and Fort Fisher in this area were just two of North Carolina's activated military installations during the war, giving the railroad plenty of business. In the middle of it all, in 1943, the company welcomed its most famous president, at least in Wilmington, with the arrival of champion McDowell Davis. 
but by then, everybody knew Champ. A North Carolina native raised in Wilmington, Champ started his railroad career with the Wilmington and Weldon line as a freight house messenger boy in 1893. He came from a family of modest means, despite being the grandson of Nicholas Nixon, the largest slave owner in the Wilmington area before the Civil War. Champ would work himself up in the company, position by position, stenographer to clerk to freight manager to vice president of traffic, and every role in between. When he took over as president, he had big dreams for the railroad. He wanted to reach speeds of 100 miles per hour for a 100-car train. He wanted to make passenger trains a luxury experience, institute new signaling systems, and run freight trains around the clock. He oversaw the transition from steam to diesel locomotives, mounted a massive rebuilding campaign of aging and damaged rails, and stayed vigilant of the reality that with the advent of automobiles and other technological advances, the railroad had to continue to go further and faster to stay relevant and indispensable. He was immortalized as the namesake of the company's first streamlined passenger train, which was known as the Champion, and he was also notably the one who chose purple as the color of their trains. Champ lived in Wilmington, but spent much of his week in his personal train car office, traveling from branch to branch, inspecting the line and hearing reports from managers. In many ways, Champ was the adult version of that kid playing with their train set. He was a lifelong bachelor who funneled everything he had into his work. He loved the railroad and he was constantly dreaming up ways to make it better. But he was also pushing it to its limits. In an effort to be the best, the Champ era at the ACL also spent the most. With thousands of employees now on the payroll and a non-stop stream of big ideas to foster, the company was beginning to face a decline by the middle of the century. One costly reality was that Wilmington was no longer an ideal location for its headquarters. Thanks to new stations that had been built over the past 50 years, it was now 100 miles or more from the main line in either direction, north or south. For years, Champ had been able to push back any challenge to Wilmington's place at the top, due in part to his clout and his loyalty to the city. But by the 1950s, he was in his 70s, and the company's board, with whom Champ often locked horns, was looking for a change in leadership. In a meeting of the board on December 15, 1955, the ACL decided the time had come to move its headquarters to a new city that offered more geographic accessibility to its main line and shortened travel time for its officers. Champ had lost the battle, and Wilmington had lost its biggest employer overnight. When the news broke that evening, a sense of bewilderment washed over the city. Could this be real? Could a company that had literally forged its standing in the country with the rails that ran through Wilmington 
really just pack up and leave? In short, yeah, but it would take time. On the morning of Black Thursday, 1,600-plus employees who accounted for $6.5 million on the payroll woke up working for one of Wilmington's oldest and most respected industries. But when they went to sleep that night, if they could, none of them knew what tomorrow held. Today, 1,600 jobs doesn't seem as drastic in a city that now has a population of more than 120,000. And even in a pandemic year like 2020, that has seen millions lose their jobs and livelihoods. But in 1955, Wilmington was barely a third of the size it is today. And if you weren't directly affected by this decision, you definitely knew someone who was. Maybe even in your own family. The city's mayor, Dan Cameron, immediately vowed to work to reverse the decision. But there was no use. This was business and Wilmington was no longer the most profitable place from which to conduct it. However, the relocation didn't happen immediately, and would in fact take five years to complete. The company ultimately chose to move its offices to Jacksonville, Florida, after eliminating other contenders in Charleston and Savannah. The new headquarters were completed in 1960. On August 1st that year, the company cleaned out its Wilmington headquarters and transported 2 million pounds of office equipment and records and 3 million pounds of household goods, 500 miles to their new home. The ACL also relocated more than 900 workers and their families from Wilmington to Jacksonville, providing a sense of relief for those fearful the move would put them out of work. But for those who were left behind, including a city left with a massive industrial void, the exodus of the Atlantic Coastline Railroad stung for years to come. In December 1959, the company had gifted the city a Christmas present of its four most valuable downtown buildings. But these pieces of prime real estate stayed vacant for years, and in some cases decades. When Cruz demolished Union Station in 1970, it took 300 charges to bring down the six-story building. Today, its legacy lives on through Cape Fear Community College's new building of the same name, which can be seen at the intersection of Red Cross and Front Streets, where the railroad's offices once stood. The rail beds that were carved out of the earth around town would also lay quiet as weeds and grass reclaimed them, and hundreds of miles of tracks around the region were pulled up starting in the 1970s. Champ Davis would remain with the railroad for less than two years after Black Thursday. In his retirement, he swore off the business he had dedicated his life to, refusing to sit on the ACL's board and even selling all of his shares in the company. The lifelong railroad loyalist had had enough. Today, the Atlantic Coastline Railroad's presence in Wilmington is hard to find beyond a few places. 
Only two of its freight houses still stand on Water Street. One is home to the Wilmington Railroad Museum, and the other to the Coastline Convention Center. Passenger service continued in Wilmington until 1968, but by then, ridership was down to just 10 people a day by some accounts. To survive the ever-competitive industry, the Atlantic Coastline Railroad itself would resort to something it knew all too well, a merger. In the 1980s, it merged with its longtime rival, Seaboard Airline Railroad, to make Seaboard Coastline Railroad. Eventually, it too would be absorbed by another company, this time CSX Corporation, which now manages the existing rail in Wilmington, primarily around the port. More than a century later, and it's still hard to keep up with all of these railroad companies. But what we should take away from the story of the Atlantic Coastline Railroad and all of those that preceded it in Wilmington is that this industry was the lifeblood of the city for more than a century. Through wars, a depression, and plenty of other highs and lows, it brought people to this region that may not have otherwise made the journey. The railroad gave Wilmington opportunities and connections like it hadn't had before, and it opened its gates to the future. But let's not forget that this is also a story of loss. What would Wilmington have been like had it been able to save its railroad industry? What would the city look like if it still had a passenger train service to cities like Raleigh that could give people another way of getting to the region? And what would Wilmington have become if Black Thursday had just been another day of work for all those employees? Joining me now to talk further about the Atlantic Coastline Railroad and the railroad's legacy here in Wilmington is Holly Saperstein, the director of the Wilmington Railroad Museum. Holly, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. So I want to start out with giving people an idea of, or really clarifying for them, all of the the lines and the railways we talk about in this episode. Um, And I want to tell people that we are actually recording at the Railroad Museum. So if you hear some choo-chooing in the background, that is from people experiencing the museum in real time <laughs> while we were here in kind of your library. Yes. So uh, it's 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 fun to, as I tell people during COVID, there's been a lot that's been lost in terms of uh, normalcy, but we've been able to take the show to the history in a way. And so we're doing that here again today here at the Railroad Museum, which I am going to encourage you multiple times in this episode to come visit because it's very cool and you guys have so many uh, wonderful explanations of how the railroad was so important to Wilmington, which we're going to talk about today. But again, just kind of seeing it in person and being out where it was is uh, is just a valuable part of this whole story. Uh, but again, I want to start out by giving people just a little bit of a clarification, uh, because even as I was doing this research, all of these lines that came through Wilmington uh, over the years, they can get kind of jumbled in your head. So it all kind of starts with the Wilmington Weldon line in 1940, uh, 1840. Yes. And then you have the Wilmington Manchester line that comes in the 1850s. Yes. Now that one was basically reserved for some exporting, some transportation between North and South Carolina. 
Um, the other one connected to another one that went more southeast as a whole. But then they're both absorbed into the Atlantic Coastline Railroad by 1900. That's right. That's all correct. Okay. Yes. So those are our kind of key terms here when we go into this conversation. Uh, but I want to start out by talking about the importance of the railroad, you know, going all the way back to the Wilmington-Weldon line. Why was Wilmington so eager and why was it so necessary for them to establish the railroad here? And why did it kind of become the heartbeat of this whole town in this region? Well, it was established, uh, they actually chartered the Wilmington and Welton in 1834, but it wasn't until 1840 that it was completed and ready to go. And one of the main reasons is because of the shipping port here. Mm -hmm. Uh, They could bring in goods and and services here and then put them on the rail line and take them north to south. And at one point in time, the Wilmington and Weldon line was the longest rail line in the world for a short time yeah. at a whole 160 miles. And they promoted it as such. I mean, oh, they yes. used every time they could say it, they would say it. They did. It, it was a, a, when they decided to put the railroad here in Wilmington, it was a, a, an incredible big deal because they realized that they were putting themselves on the map in a completely new way that they hadn't been before. Part of that uh, excitement was the whole town shut down for the dedication of the Wilmington and Weldon headquarters here. They had fed 550 people, had bands that walked down a front street. They shot cannons off every 15 minutes. It had crazy ceremonies just to to uh, welcome the Wilmington and Weldon here. There was a real pride in it. A massive pride. And it was said that even in the uh, W&W days, uh, so many people in this town worked for the railroad, or were impacted by the railroad. Railroad paydays were huge. Well, and and I think that when I talk about the beating heart of it, it's because, you know, before this time, Wilmington was so reliant on ships coming into port to take things out. And now there was a real interconnectedness with Wilmington, which, you know, still to some degree is kind of far out here. You know, when people say they want to fly to Wilmington, they have to take that extra leg from somewhere. And so having that connection on the train line was so important for getting what Wilmington was producing out to more places in a different way. Exactly. I mean, prior to the railroad coming on board, if you wanted to transport goods, it would take days and days. The railroad took something that took two, three, five, six, seven days and turned it into one day. So things that were perishables, People started even eating different because you could send something from South Carolina all the way up to New York. Mm-hmm. And suddenly they were eating the delicacies that they had in the South that they were not even used to. Something that we don't even think of today because we can get it in an instant. That's Amazon right. will drop it on your doorstep anytime you want. <laughs> exactly. So, so um, well, one thing I want to say about this is in our previous episodes, we talked about the importance of the railroad. It was what helped Wilmington become the Confederacy's lifeline. Yes. In a way, because it was, as we just discussed, the the transport of, of perishable goods, all this stuff became so important when it was suddenly guns, when it was reinforcements for the Confederacy. Yes. That really helped Wilmington in the Civil War be a major player. That's right. Uh, in fact, Robert E. Lee said that the Wilmington and Weldon line was the the lifeline of the Confederacy. Mm-hmm. Wilmington was pretty lucky in the early parts of the war because we were outside of a lot of the, the battles that were going on. And the Wilmington and Weldon line had capabilities to uh, fix their tracks if somebody tried to blow them up that other lines didn't. So when Wilmington fell and the Wilmington and Weldon line fell, it was, that was the end. It yeah. really was. 
but even in that sense, the railroad had to rebuild after the war. So oh, what, yes. what did that look like here in Wilmington? Interestingly enough, a lot of railroads fell during the Civil War. Uh, the Wilmington Weldon Line limped out of the Civil War, but was able to recover. But there were, there were a number of lines that they closed even after the Civil War. There was a, a, a huge cost uh, in, during Reconstruction to bring the line back to what it was. And Robert Bridgers was the president at that time and was was an incredible logistician and, and uh, he, he was into timetables. He was just brilliant. And so he was able to actually really save the line. Yeah, and, and that, that had to be done after the war because Wilmington, as we've discussed in so many episodes, uh, had to pull itself back together. I mean, it it had been one of the last places to fall in the Confederacy's arsenal, as you said. And so it had to be kind of a, a reclamation period of, of what Wilmington was, who it was, and what it could do, especially on the railroad. That's right. So it's hard for even me, someone who looks at all these historic photos, all of these accounts for this show, to kind of wrap my head around just how sprawling this industry was in Wilmington. Mm-hmm. I mean, we are sitting at the uh, Wilmington Railroad Museum right now, which is in a, one of the few buildings that still survives from the Atlantic Coastline Railroad days. And so can you give us an idea of just how big this operation was here on the north end of the, the river? Because it, it was a time when this area here on the north end was more prosperous than ever. I mean, there was more action than ever. You just yes. don't see that right now. You see a little more recently with development. But what did it look like down here when the railroad was here? Well, just at the north end of uh, downtown, you would have had the cotton exchange that we know now. And then we would have had uh, Sprunt's operations. We would have had a barrel manufacturer. And then you would get to the big railroad complex. And you had more than just the ACL or the Wilmington Weldon terminals there. Uh, there were times that there were actually the, the seaboard was here and the ACL at the same point of time operating dual operations. So you had a number of headquarter buildings that were here. Uh, you had the freight houses, the, the last two pretty much remaining buildings out of this complex, which were initially the Wilmington and Weldon freight houses. Behind us would have been other uh, the seaboard uh, freight houses for a while. You had a huge roundhouse where the Schwartz Center is for the Cape Fear Community College now. If you see that rounded front, it sets in the footprint of what the roundhouse was like. And there was a major cutout, uh, rail cut, that went from Nut Street all the way down through the city, and that rail cut got the trains out of town. That rail cut still is in existence, and they're looking at making it a park. Mm-hmm. And there is a section of it already that Cape Fear Community College has done a beautiful job in making a walking area. You can actually even see the old carpenter's shop that's inset into the rail wall. A portion of that wall, by the way, is probably one of the oldest structures in the rail complex that's down here dating back to the original Wilmington Weldon days. Yeah, I mean, it, I'm going to show people some some pictures of this, but it's just kind of hard to wrap your head around that much being down here now. Oh, It was just building after building, and they were tall buildings. They were so tall that they had connection, uh, almost pedestrian bridges from one to the other, and it made Wilmington look like a bigger city. It really did, and it completely, this end of the city... The skyline is so different now because of that. So different. Though the one building, I think, had six floors on it, which was a tall building for mm-hmm. Wilmington at the time. And then they had these big towers on top. They were just massive yeah. and all gone. 
Yeah. Which is so tragic. And, and you know, we, we touch on that a lot in this show, you know, thinking all the way back to when we talked about Lumina Pavilion in Wrightsville Beach and, mm-hmm. and a lot of these things that have been lost. Our last episode was about the, the world's largest living Christmas tree. That's right. And that's one of our things that has been lost, along with all these buildings. I mean, you'd think it was such a different age for historic preservation. And a lot of these things, especially Union uh, Station, that- the original <sighs> one. Thinking about them demolishing that in the 1960s and seeing those pictures, it it has to break the hearts of every historic preservationist there is because that is the kind of building that keeps history alive in in a tangible material sense. Absolutely. And the interior of that building was beautiful. Um, But it also, interestingly enough, I I have some floor plans of it, that it also showed the segregation of that period of time. Yes. That there were black waiting rooms and white waiting rooms, for example. Uh, But it was a magnificent building. To see those demo pictures just breaks your heart. Beverly Tetterton has done a great job with looking at those old buildings that have disappeared from the face of Wilmington. And every time I look at it, it just makes me want to cry. But uh, it is the Union Station that Cape Fear Community College built a couple of years ago as an homage to the original structure. But uh, it is, uh, I wish it was the original structure. I know. I think everyone does. I mean, Mm -hmm. one thing, one reason why history gets lost is because a lot of that footprint goes away in, yes. in a way. And, you know, here at the museum, you guys are keeping the story alive. But just imagine what you could do if if that building was still here. Um, so tell me what an everyday life was like for the railroad. What kind of jobs were there? What kind of activity was going on down here at the the headquarters and then just kind of the the, the rail yard, the, the warehouses? I mean, there's so much to it. Yes, at, at, at the very end, uh, the ACL actually had 16,500 employees. In this city, they had about a, a little under 2,000. So this was a small town, even in the 50s, you know, but so much of the population worked in either uh, clerical jobs. They weren't all, you know, engineers and conductors. There, there, there were a number of those people, but there were clerical jobs. There were freight house operators. There were inspectors. There was actually a police force within the railroad, and they were tanned in hand with the Wilmington police or the area police. Uh, so a person who worked on the railroad might come down to the freight house and offload freight from a ship at the end where the best western is today and put it right on the car the cars head up the the track and on on the train you would have had if it was a freight train you would have a conductor obviously an engineer um a uh, and a brakeman and a fireman there would have been a number of people who were working on the train to get the freight out of this area some of these jobs were incredibly dangerous so um a lot of people in wilmington buried their family members in Bellevue, for example, who were killed in railroad industrial accidents. But you could also just be a clerk um, or uh, an administrative person. Well, because Claude Howell was. Exactly. And this was the headquarters. So you had so much of that operation that, you know, the the, the paperwork operation of the Atlantic Coastline Railroad was here in Wilmington. So that's that's the role that a lot of people were playing. Yes. The planning of how to get this freight to the different locations. Those people who did the logistics and the quality control, those people were working and living here. Uh, and so many people have said if you if you didn't work for the railroad, your family, uh, somebody in your family did, or your customers did. So it was it was the major employer. It was, the reach of it is kind of hard to you know overstate because yes. it's you're you're correct in in the things I've read. You just kind of see these little jobs here and there that 
were the lifeline for so many families. It's just kind of crazy to think about it now, just being such a huge employer. And the fact that most of these jobs were union jobs. And now we don't see as much of an of a aspect of the union within our workforce here. When you think a good portion of the people who worked for the ACL were union, and they said that uh, there was about a 20% they may have made about 20% more than a lot of the average people in other jobs in, in Wilmington. So it was a high-paying employer as well. What was the railroad bringing in and out of Wilmington? I know that changes over time. It does. You have cotton, you have naval stores. But what, you know, as it grows, as it advances, the, the trains get faster. Mm-hmm. They go more places. What kind of things are coming in and out of Wilmington? Well, the early days, like you said, uh, cotton, turpentine was a huge thing. Longleaf pine was a big thing to come out of here. But also, ships would come in from places like England and drop off things from Europe, which would go out to, to New York or, or Florida or wherever they were headed. But out of this area, things that were coming out were certainly rice, uh, cotton, naval stores, turpentine, things that, that were part of the exports of this area. Mm-hmm. Um, as things changed, uh, you saw people like, uh, for example, Flavel Foster's business that he would import things from uh, the Bahamas where they manufactured doors and sashes and he would put them on the train and send them out to other places around the country to use those doors and sashes in building. So a little bit of everything, a little bit of everything, which is kind of cool thinking, you know, again, we're on the coast. So it, a lot of people see it as an endpoint. That's right. But for the purposes of the railroad, it was a thoroughfare in a way. I mean, it was, it was people were coming here and taking things away. They were bringing things here that were, you know, replenishing the city, and and it's just uh, it's kind of interesting to think about it now because when you look at the rail beds that are still here, they look so of a bygone era, and they kind of are. They are, and, and we're going to so talk was- a little bit about the process to reclaim them. But it's such a a time that is in the past, but it informs the growth of Wilmington that we know today because. You know, you have to think if there wasn't the railroad that was giving it this higher profile through some tough times. I mean, the Civil War, World War II, World War One, The Depression. The Depression. Thinking about this lifeline for Wilmington, it was the lifeline for the Confederacy. But in many ways, the railroad was the lifeline for Wilmington through some tough times. It really was. This, this was an area that brought in not only jobs, but also just really introduced people to Wilmington. People knew about Wilmington because of this. People would travel through here that may not have traveled through here uh, had the line been put through Fayetteville, which was an initial, they mm-hmm. had looked at it at that initially. Wilmington got lucky between the uh, the World War II shipyard, the North mm-hmm. Carolina uh, shipyard, and, uh, and then the railroad in, yes. in many ways. I want to go back to one of the things you mentioned, the police force. Now, yes. I was out here a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about a separate story. Mm-hmm. Uh, a Hallmark Christmas movie had shot here at the, the Railroad Museum. And you showed me a book of arrests and convictions mm-hmm. of people who had been caught doing something very naughty, breaking the law in some way on the property of the Atlantic Coastline Railroad. Mm-hmm. And I wanted you to talk about that a little bit because it includes a, a really interesting perspective of the time period in Wilmington in terms of race. But it also includes a very interesting story about a young boy who's in there. So uh, where did you find this book and and what about this six-year-old boy? Well, this book was uh, given to us many, many years ago as part of the uh, artifacts that were collected by our initial founders and has been in the collection for a number of years. And it is actually the Wilmington arrest records for a period of about... uh, 
well, gosh, almost 70 years. Uh, and the Wilmington, the Wilmington Railroad had its own uh, police force, badged police force, and they worked obviously hand in hand with the, the, the court here and the, the uh, city police. But it was their job to police the property, the rails, and um, make sure the, the, the trains and the people who were riding them or working in them were safe. There were actually uh, more than one uh, railroad police officer that was murdered or killed by um, what we would now call a hobo or uh, an outlaw who tried to rob one of the ships, uh, the ships, <laughs> the train. <laughs> wow. We're talking about ships and trains. <laughs> Anyhow, um, the, the book is stunningly um, eye-opening for what was going on. Mm-hmm. They were absolutely doing their job, but uh, something I noticed was the different um, handling of sentencing based upon whether you were black or white. Which they were noting in this book. They There's were a noting. C or a W for colored or white. That is correct. So you'll you'll go through a page and you'll see uh, that designation. It'll give the name of the person who was arrested, uh, what their crime was, whether they're uh, a male or a female, what color designation they've been given, what age they were, and it will tell when they were brought into court what the sentence was. And we see this boy named Joseph. Mind you, this is 1935, not that long ago in relatively. Uh, he has, has something to do with a runaway train. I'm going to try to find the actual court documents if I can because I'm obsessed with this story. Six years old, runaway train. He probably was, it was horseplay. Maybe he pulled the, the brake. We don't know. Well, this is such a sprawling operation. There probably was people just roaming. I mean, walking around, seeing things. And you have to imagine kids just being kids. You know, they want to play with trains the same way we do today. (laughs) It just happened to be a lot more real ones in Wilmington at the time. That's right. And it could have been just parked down there in the cut. It could have been at the roundhouse. I don't know. But it was someplace here in Wilmington, probably parked, and he got it to go. Mm -hmm. Um, It doesn't indicate there was a lot of accident or, or cost to what happened because there is some of that is noted but his sentence is whipped at city hall a six-year-old child whipped at city hall now at first i thought oh does that mean that he was spanked like they used to in in schoolhouses but no it isn't that because you look at the rest of the arrest records on the same page the same year and you see predominantly black Arrest records indicated whipped at City Hall or whipped and probated at City Hall, where you see white people are not given that punishment. They're given probation, 30 days served, uh, 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 or some kind of fine. So that, I mean, it's, it's so it's there's such a differentiation between those sentences yeah. that it's, it's stunning. It's the difference between time served and public humiliation. Correct. And, and and also, you know, physical punishment. Physical, yes. And you have to imagine that some of these people probably didn't spend 30 days in prison they or, or, or jail. They probably just were given that sentence, you know, good behavior maybe, depending on their crime, whatever. But there is such a harsher punishment for people. And you can just see it when you look at these pages. And I brought this up because you can see this. It's in one of your glass cases out yes. here. And if you come through and look at it, the both pages are one single line of each person's uh, crime in a way. And uh, and just seeing not only the designation of race, but also just, it's just right there in ink. I mean, 
you can see it based on race. It's just, yes. it's really interesting. And, and it also just brings to to mind the fact that there was such a law enforcement angle to this. It had its own police force because this was, I kind of reckon it in, when I'm, when I'm thinking about it for this episode, this was almost like a little town in itself yes. in Wilmington. It was operating with its own employees. You know, it had a post office. I mean, that's how it was dealt with. And it's just a reflection of the time. And it's, it's really unfortunate to see just literally in print. Yes. It, it was uh, pretty shocking to me when I first noticed that. And it has, it's really stuck with me. And it's a story I want to know more about. So I want to talk a little bit more about the railroad in Wilmington as a whole. You know, I just called it its own kind of city in a mm-hmm. way. What was the relationship between the railroad, the company, the industry, the workers with the city at large? I will say that uh, they said that Champion Davis, for example, was the most powerful man in Wilmington. That's a really good example. Um, I think that the people who who led the the leaders of the railroad, whether it was back all the way to you know Bridgers with the Wilmington Welder, all the way through the the uh, Rice, who was the last um, president, they had an incredible power here because the railroad was so important. But uh, we also saw people who were involved with the railroad who were actually mayors of the city. Their their day to day employment was was the railroad, but they were the mayor and city council people. Uh, certainly, there was a huge part of the city government that was draw- driven by the railroad. Again, thinking about them as one, two separate entities, but they have to coexist. I mean, being the largest employer in a town is a big responsibility, and I think that comes into play. You know, as we move forward, and mm-hmm. I, and I want to talk about kind of the the exodus of the Atlantic Coastline Railroad because we do get into the 1950s. What is the state of the railroad in the 1950s? At this point in time, they have actually uh, uh, merged with other railroads. The ACL is is probably one of the most profitable, not profitable, but probably the most prolific rail lines at the time. By the assimilation of different railroads, they now have over 14,000 miles of track that are within their control. Uh, They are known for their runs from New York all the way down to Florida. Uh, Their passenger service is considered the top quality passenger service in the nation at the time. Um, They, uh, Champ Davis, who has uh, quality in mind at all times. He wants it to the best and the brightest and the fastest and the most incredible railroad that it can be, uh, which comes at a cost. So at the time the 50s are rolling out, they're looking at the fact that their cost are outweighs their profit sometimes. Um, and they have to look at better ways to, and more efficient ways to do business. Because let's not forget, this is still a business. It's still a business. It absolutely is a business. And, you know, there were, there were, just to step back for a second, you know, when the ACL became the ACL, it became the ACL because of Northerners who came in and took over what some pe- people felt like was a Southern rail line. So it took many years for the ACL to just warm in the hearts of people. But some places they still weren't very loved. For example, Tampa. And so people uh, outside of Wilmington had, uh, weren't always big fans of the ACL, but they needed the ACL. And uh, it, was, it was seriously probably the king of railroads. Seaboard was right up there with them. And then, of course, they assimilated um, and later became CSX. But at, in the 50s, it was, it was one of the biggest lines in the country. So my question is, 
you know, we talked about how it being a dangerous job. Mm-hmm. Was it a respected, you know, industry? I mean, there's always that that push and pull between a community and the the business that in, in many ways was defining Wilmington at that time. Was it a good company? I, I, I just I want to know kind of the relationship between all of these different factors, because there's so much coming to play in this. I have read in documents that that ACL employees throughout the all of the places that not just Wilmington but across the South, primarily, had traditions. Had they had their own glee club, their own baseball team, their own basketball team. They had organizations that did certain things like build floats, and this was a this these people loved the company who worked for the company primarily. It was it was a thing of pride. Uh, there is a, a great deal of research also that, that uh, black employees of the railroad found themselves in a better economic position than they had been since as, as uh, the South changed. And they found themselves in positions where their neighbors felt a great deal of respect about what they were doing because they were working for the railroad. So it was a very big part of the cultural life of ACL employees as well. Well, and... And that's a real big change for Wilmington over the decades after 1898. Mm-hmm. You know, the relationship between the races here in Wilmington was fraught, to put it generally, um, and very much not equal. But you saw it first at, or well, maybe not first, but you also saw it at the shipyard, where black employees were given sometimes more opportunity than they would in other industries. And was that the case here at the railroad? Very much so. I mean, certainly there were certain jobs that seemed like that they were um, they were pigeonholed for black people. For example, porters. That in the society of and the culture of the people were porters. It's a very interesting thing because they were respected, but in some ways they were not respected. I mean, uh, they were at, uh, many porters all went by the name George, just so nobody'd have to learn their actual name. But it was still a very respected job. But then you later, as the railroad changed, you saw uh, black people become engineers, conductors, things like this. But in the beginning, eh, kind of a different mix. Uh, but black labor actually built the railroad. Oh, absolutely. For mm-hmm. sure. Especially because it was coming before the Civil War. And mm-hmm. so it was slave labor that yes. was doing it. And then after that, convict labor, yeah. which was primarily, unfortunately, black yeah. labor. Um and, and and while there was progress, let's not forget, this was still the age of segregation. And so, you know, there could be progress for black mm-hmm. employees here, but the larger cultural community was still they very much it. behind the times. Yes. I want to transition, though, into the exit of uh, oh. the, the railroad, because it becomes such a huge flashpoint for a, mm-hmm. an era of change in Wilmington. And Black Thursday, as we mentioned it, which is December 15th, uh, 1955, uh, and this episode's going to come out on December 15th, 2020, which will be 65 years. Wow. And so I- I'm curious, you know, was there any warning before the announcement of or in the meeting b- the night before to really upend an industry that had defined Wilmington for more than a century? No. no I mean, the people at the top level do. Mm-hmm. But it absolutely was a rug pull for the community and for all of the people who worked for the ACL. I mean, 1,600-plus families here in Wilmington were employed by that and get to see this in the newspaper or hear it at the job that that day. Certainly, they'd been looking at it. They realized they were 100 miles off of the main line, that logistically they had to go way out of their way to transport goods and passengers and everything else. The cost was inefficient because of it, and they were definitely looking for a change. 
um, they had been searching for a new headquarters. I believe Champ Davis pushed it off as long as he possibly could because he had a, a, he loved Wilmington. Um, he would travel all over the country with in his boxcar office, uh, not boxcar, but his uh, a private office car, and uh, it was parked here on the weekends. He he loved the city. I think he pushed it off as long as he could, and it finally became that there was they had to make the change to to survive. They did it right about the time that Champ Davis was retiring. <laughs> so, um, and I, I do think that that was purposeful. But it was it was a huge red pull. And they were blindsided. Oh, yes. Dan Cameron, who was the mayor at the time, actually came to, to Champ to basically beg him to make it stop. And he's like, I'm sorry, son, it's already done. So, yeah. um, Well, there's that, yeah. there's that line in the newspaper the next day of the city has already said they're going to fight it. Yes. You know, they're going to try and change the decision. They're going to appeal it. They're mm-hmm. going to do whatever they can. Was there any chance of that happening? Or was the decision made the night before and it wasn't changing? It was a done deal. Um, and, 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 you know, when the mayor did come, he he basically was told, too bad, it's, it's done. Um, and at that point in time, they realized that there was just no way around it. Well, it goes back to show that there could be a lot of camaraderie. There could mm-hmm. be so much connective tissue between the ACL and Wilmington. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, it's still a business. It's not yes. beholden to the city where it's in. And unfortunately, it's not beholden to its employees. It's beholden to, unfortunately, the bottom line. That's and right. And so Wilmington being defined by this industry is such an important part of its history. And and the, the ACL's history is defined by Wilmington, but they're not... Exclusive. They, are they, not they exclusive. can exist apart, unfortunately, and that's where you see that breakaway on December 15th, 1955. Yes. And it didn't happen right away. I no, mean, no. it took like five years. In fact, at the time, Rice was actually the president. Uh, uh, Champ had already retired, and it fell into Rice's hands. And, and uh, so the, the, the new president of the ACL is a different kind of guy from Champ Davis. Champ was uh, very much workaholic <laughs> and he was all about making it a huge it was all about quality and not about relationships as much so it was it's a good thing i think that rice was the president at the time that they did the move because he really wanted to think about the families as well as the operational move but it took five years of building the new skyscraper building in jacksonville florida that changed the skyline of jacksonville florida you know they call it the gateway to of florida and so here acl's this huge presence as they build this building but the move itself is an outstanding crazy thing that they they had to do to move they move 900 families here and to move 900 families and all their goods moving them from wilmington to jacksonville florida why though First of all, there was a lot of highly skilled people here that knew the operations, that had a lot of um, industrial uh, intelligence on the company. They were a, a huge part of the operation here, and to, to try to replace them in Jacksonville would have been very difficult. Yeah. But also, I think that they were loyal to their employees, and they tried to make it as painless as possible. I mean, they provided... Uh, passenger cars to go down on house hunting. People could go and look for for a house, have a day or two down in Florida on the on the company to go and check out wow. where their new housing was. At the time, it was the biggest uh, corporate relocation that had ever happened. 
I, you know, I have information. I'm gonna find it. Okay, uh, they moved 1,650 workers, uh, or they had 1,650 workers on the payroll. Uh, in the end, 730. Uh, employee families relocated along with 225 single employees and 25 married couples. So about 900 employees altogether. Um, Which shows just how good the jobs were, that they were willing to uproot their lives to follow it. Yes, and a lot of people were just devastated by that because not only were they leaving everything they knew and their friends and their family and, and having been here for multiple generations, even working for the ACL, it was a complete change for them. Um, and they were going to, yes, have their job, but their, their lives were going to be upended. Even with the help of the company, it was still going to be difficult. Well, and Wilmington not only lost its industrial center, but it lost citizens. I mean, okay. they, it, they were pulled Think away somewhere else. Think about that many people leaving. I mean, when we lost a lot of the film industry not long ago, we lost a lot of people to Atlanta. But the percentage of the population was much smaller. And a lot of them still lived here. Yes. They just spent their time in Atlanta to do the work. That's right. Here, the they case was they moved. They, yes. they were no longer residents. That's that's really fascinating. So you have to think about the impact, too, on these residents, not only leaving their friends and family, you know, kids leaving their schools, but you also think about the impact on the, the local merchants who relied on that income, those those ACL paydays, to, to make their, their uh, profitability happen. I'm just curious, you know, before the decision to relocate a lot of these families, was there panic in oh, Wilmington? Yes. There absolutely was. It's, it, it, looking at articles in the in the newspaper yeah. about it, you see people writing letters to the editor. You see uh, uh, quotes from people about the devastation it's going to cause to them. There was panic. There was. And I think that the, the leadership of the ACL really tried to calm down their employees and, and I think through some some press releases, they tried to calm down the people here and said, don't panic. And also, you know, the, the mayor was had an article in the, the Wilmington Star News about don't panic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was a lot of that. Okay, hang on. Take a deep breath. It's going to be okay. <laughs> because, you know, the, the, the employees yeah. benefited from the move in terms of if they chose to, to go with it. But the city loses a lot. The city, yeah, did and not so benefit it's, at it's all. It's not just the city... The city had to really reckon with what the era of Wilmington after the railroad looked like. Yes. I think one of the, the ways that the ACL tried to kind of uh, put a little bit of a band-aid on that wound was by donating the buildings, uh, primarily to the Cape Fear Community College. Uh, so all of these, uh, one was used by the Wilmington PD for a while, but the, the buildings that were left, these great buildings that, like we talked about, are gone now for the most part other than these two freight houses. The ACL said, oh, here, have this land, have these buildings, as I think one way to placate that, that wound. But as you see, I mean, we're just now seeing development in a, in a large scale way on this end of town. Oh, yeah. So it took time. There are pictures we have uh, of just weeds growing up around these buildings or them just deteriorating, um, the ones that were left standing. And when this museum was founded, it was for a short time at the Dudley Mansion, but then it moved to Freight House A, which is now going to be the lobby of the Aloft Hotel. That was our building to begin with. It is just abandoned dirt lots around here. Mm-hmm. There's really not a lot going on. And even when I moved here just 10 years ago, this North End was pretty much a dead spot. Mm-hmm. 
it, people didn't even know the museum was down here because they just didn't have a reason to come down here. Mm-hmm. I mean, they'd go as far as community college, and that would be about it. Yeah. And so the, the arrival of the convention center, um, mm-hmm. you see some of these developments like Pier 33. Yes. You see uh, Embassy Suites, the hotel, as you mentioned, the Aloft Hotel. An expansion of Cape Fear Community College down, you know, bringing people down for Azalea Festival concerts, yes. um, Wilson you know, PPD, all of this stuff has has opened this this floodgate of development yes. to this North End that at one time was this huge industry that, again, it's just really hard to wrap your head around. This was, you know, we think of the entry point of Wilmington being... I-40 or coming over the Cape Fear Memorial Bridge. But this was a huge entry point for people right here in downtown. And it just stopped being after uh, after so many years. It just the pipeline closed. That's right. You know, just to take us back for one second about the the importance of what this place was. The beautiful passenger station down there had a bell in it. And they would ring that bell when trains were coming in like five minutes before and five minutes after. And, uh, excuse me, five minutes before they were coming in and then when they were leaving or, or taking off. And people from in Wilmington that weren't even associated with the railroad would come down to just see the passengers come off the, the trains or give ladies flowers. I mean, this place was just kind of a heart in many ways of Wilmington. Are there any other remnants of the, the railroad that people can see around this area that may not be right here? I think probably the biggest thing is the cut. Um, the rail cut, and boy, I hope that that becomes a park. Uh, Rhonda Bellamy and, and, a, and a team of people are really heading up, trying to convert that into a great park and an access point potentially for light rail at some point in time uh, that will allow us to get through the north end of the city more uh, more effectively. And that's the Wilmington Rail Trail, correct? That is yeah. the rail trail is the is the process on that. All the the actual rails have been pulled out of that cut, but. If you come to the museum and you walk across the street right next to the uh, Cape Fear parking deck is beginning of that cut. Mm-hmm. And you can take a little bit of a walk where the Cape Fear Community College has done a beautiful job of restoration on that. You can see a very, very old structure, one of the original structures, which is a carpenter shop that's buried deep in the wall of the cut. And peek through the windows and see some things there. I will say this all connects back to a story we did in our first season about... Mako Lights, and then pulling up the railway out in Brunswick County, and that is when, uh, you know, the Joe Baldwin, supposedly the the Mako Lights stopped appearing to people when the railway came up, and it's because, you know, in a a cheesy kind of way, so many stories are tied to the railway here in in Wilmington and this area, and even possibly its most famous ghost story is tied to the railway here because that whole story happened on a train car and a train wreck supposedly and so it goes back so far it 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 really does and and it it has that fantastical element but it also has this really practical industrial it put people to work for a century element to it yes and just thinking of its absence here in Wilmington now it is really tough because you kind of wonder what could have been of Wilmington and its connectivity to so many places is really uh fascinating and uh and really sad that we don't kind of know what the the fruits of that continued relationship would have been could have you know that could have been like the jacksonville i mean look at how huge jacksonville is now but i think that um you know we did see companies like dupont and uh, dow and uh, or corning um come in ge of course ppd 
that became major employers in the area. But that took a long time. You know, that wasn't overnight. Yeah, we shouldn't say Wilmington's some, like, you know, non-existent city. Yeah. <laughs> but there, there is, there is a, you know, a what-if quality to there it. There is a what-if quality. Of, would we have skyscrapers here? Exactly. You know, <laughs> would, would the buildings of the Atlantic Coastline Railroad be taller? Yes, I mean, that's they, right. it's, it's a real interesting alternative future to uh, to ponder, I guess, yes. in a way. Yeah, and now uh, that uh, the ACL, of course, was absorbed by CSX. And so that, that uh, headquarters now is a CSX headquarters. Well, and we yeah, also no. do know that trains still exist in Wilmington. They you do. Know, they're not completely absent. You've probably been stopped by one very recently because they do come through a lot. For years, you could still actually bring a train up here. And mm. the, when the, the, the museum would have an anniversary, they would actually bring a CSX train up here. Then, of course, that all went away in the, you know, at some point in time. Well, you think about it. Uh, earlier this fall, we did a, an episode about presidential visits to Wilmington. And, you know, the, perhaps the biggest one besides George Washington was William Howard Taft. Yes. And he came through on the train. He arrived in Union Station. And they talk about the whole kind of parade and welcome for him extended from Union Station through downtown. And it was because that was the entry point for people. And people met him out there. And it's just really interesting to think about. I'd love to have seen it. You know, yes. we still have pictures. But you always want to see like a... You know, I just want to go back in time for like 20 minutes and just see what it looked like. When I see pictures of the Azalea Parade starting here, I believe, either started or ended here, you see the pictures of it at the depot, that beautiful passenger depot, and here are these grand floats for the Azalea Parade, and all of these ACL employees standing around outside looking at the Azalea Parade. So, yeah, that kind of nostalgia. And I think railroads and trains they have that kind there's some kind of romance and nostalgia to them that that uh certainly is is missing now that we don't have live rail service through here yeah because it doesn't look like it used to <laughs> no i mean i do hear it the train like at night yeah. <laughs> i still hear the csx train at night it mm. makes me happy to hear that but it is uh completely different than it was when it was railroad was king here yeah uh is that the ultimate legacy that it was king here for a while, at least, yes. uh, of of the railroad in Wilmington. Absolutely, and anybody who is a railroad buff absolutely associates both the ACL and certainly the Wilmington town, Weldon, hand in hand with Wilmington. Well, even though they had operations all through the South, of course, because the headquarters were here and it's the, it, it was born here, it will always be part of our culture and heritage. Mm-hmm. And and again, you can come see a lot of this because. This museum is one of the last places that is still standing from the time when it was king, as you said. And so I would encourage everyone to come out to the museum and see, you know, the artifacts that you guys have. You have the, I don't know the correct term, like a model train of it or a a, a recreation of what it would have looked like. I mean, you have the round uh, house, you have Union Station, you have all of this so people can kind of get a visual on a smaller scale, right. um, feel like a giant over it, um, <laughs> exactly. and uh, and and come just kind of see the the sprawling nature of the railroad because that really was what it was when it was here. That's right. The, the, the museum really, um, our artifacts are all about the Wilmington Weldon, the seaboard, the ACL that were here. That and if you look at our model layout, which is um, in the back, it's a massive model layout, one of the biggest in the, the southeast. Uh, you can see Wilmington modeled in 1955, right before that 
Black Thursday, what it looked like at the North End, and you can see how amazing that structure was. And of course, we have giant aerial photos too of, of the area, so you can take a look and just be amazed by what existed here. And I'll, I'll share some of the photos um, through our, our Cape for Unearth Facebook and through the starnewsonline.com. But again, I would encourage everyone to come out to the museum because uh, it's got some really fascinating stuff. You get to see some of the people who were in charge of it. Champ Davis, as you said. Yes. Um, you get to learn a lot of things. I learned one thing that I'll say. One thing I learned out here is that the way they used to get Mel onto a train is someone would stick their arm out holding a bag. And as it moved through town, someone would grab it. And it was a good way to lose an arm, it sounded like. It was. Like. <laughs> Thank goodness they eventually went to sticks instead of arms. Great. Yes, there's a there's a drawing of a woman kind of holding her arm out, looking a little terrified. <laughs> yeah. I would have been a little bit more terrified than her. But um, it is, uh, it's a really cool way. I think that some people think of the railroad as, as something that you play with or mm-hmm. um, just kind of an industry in a way that you don't really give thought to. But it, it really has some really deep-rooted history here in the area. Yes. Uh, that you can see out at the museum. So I would encourage everyone to come. You are open, even though COVID is still yeah. a, a thing. And so well, happily, we opened after six months of being closed for COVID. So we are so happy to see people come back. We're open Monday through Saturday uh, from 10 to 4. Um, and in the summer hours, we're open uh, all seven days mm-hmm. and uh, 10 to 5 during the summer. Holly, thank you so much for having me out here at the museum and for talking to me about the Atlantic Coastline Railroad. It was a pleasure. Thank you. That's it for the story of the Atlantic Coastline Railroad in Wilmington and the final episode of Cape Fear Unearthed for 2020. Thank you so much for joining me this week and throughout this crazy, crazy year. We have managed to keep this podcast somewhat normal throughout some very trying times, and I hope that it's been a welcome escape from the world, because it has been for me. And don't worry, the podcast isn't going anywhere. We will return in January 2021 to start a whole new year of episodes. Until we're back, Please make sure that you're a member of our Facebook group, where listeners can ask questions about our episodes and share their own memories of the region's history. In that group, I post extra content for all of our episodes and all of my coverage of local history for the Star News, and I will continue to do so during the holidays. You can find that group by searching Cape Fear Unearthed on Facebook. If you have episode ideas or questions about the show, you can also email me directly at capefearunearthed at gmail.com. And don't forget to sign up for the Cape Fear Unearthed newsletter, which goes out every week. Sign up for that newsletter at starnewsonline.com newsletters. You can get a list of all the books, articles, and resources used in researching this podcast in the show notes of each episode. Cape Fear Unearthed was written edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. You can find more of my work at starnewsonline.com or by following me on Twitter at Hunter underscore Wesley. Additional editing for the show is done by Adam Fish. This podcast is made possible by listeners and readers like you. Support local journalism and Cape Fear Unearthed by subscribing to the Star News Today 
at starnewsonline.com slash subscribe. And while you're subscribing to things, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you get the show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a review, which will help more people find Cape Fear Unearthed. Until we're back in 2021, get out and explore the Cape Fear region on your own. You never know what you might unearth. See you next year. Music